Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the It's a Dog's Life edition. Dogs have been at the sides of humans for thousands of years, and in C.A. Fletcher's vision of the future, they're going to stay at our side even after the apocalypse. C.A. Fletcher, a.k.a. Charlie Fletcher, is the author of A Boy and His Dog at the End of the World, which came out in April from Orbit Books, and I'm delighted that he's joining me on the show today from his home near Edinburgh. Hi, Charlie. Thanks for coming on New Books in Science Fiction. Rob, it's a real pleasure. Your book is one of the few whose title really says it all. Although other characters come in and out, your story focuses on two, Grizz, an adolescent, and Jip, a terrier. And the world, at least as we know it today, really has come to an end. I thought before we talk about why you wrote this story and some of the details and why you were drawn to the subject of a a kid and his pup, maybe you can tell our listeners what happened to create this world where Grizz and his family are living basically all by themselves on an empty island. In, In the book, I don't go into too much detail about precisely what happened, but in general terms, what happened was that something happened to humanity which they began to call the, when it began, they started calling it the gelding. What it meant was that essentially people stopped being able to have kids and whether it was the men, whether it was the women, whatever, but people stopped being able to you know, have children and families just remained at the size they were and then got smaller and smaller as everybody died off. And so in my vision of, of the world, what happened at the end of the world was a kind of soft apocalypse. So the world didn't die in a great sort of zombie holocaust or um, a nuclear exchange or some terrible bioweapon. People just stopped being able to have kids. And humanity, in the macro sense, did what humans in the micro sense do, which is it just got old and tired and died off. Um, It's sort of the world ended with a sigh, not a whimper or a bang. And only 0.001% of humanity escaped the effects of the gelding, which means that a world that was, say, 7 billion people has dwindled to maybe 7,000 people left across the whole planet. Um, The story begins two or three generations after this happened, after the last born generation died off. And Grizz and his family live on an island called Mingale, which is in the Outer Hebrides off the west coast of Scotland. And they live essentially a very simple life where they, they're aware of what happened. It's not, a, it's not far enough away from the end of the world that they're in any kind of mystery about how the world ended. They are just aware that it did end. And they live scavenging off the remnants of our world and farming and fishing and keeping themselves together and living a much more stripped down, bare, back to nature kind of life. I love that term, soft apocalypse. It's very evocative. I saw in an interview that you said that creating the setting wasn't really a matter of world building, but world erosion, which I thought was a great way to put it. 
it was a sort of pleasure to do. It was a um, yeah. It was wasn't world building. It was world subtraction because you you look at the world as it is now, and then you think, well, what happens when the workforce disappears? When electricity goes down? When planes no longer fly? When cars no longer work? When gas and oil are no longer you know pulled from the ground? When the nuclear um, power stations have to shut down? You know what happens when we have no power? What happens when the internet disappears? What happens when people stop being able to travel? When they stop being able to talk to each other across sort of transatlantic phone lines or satellites. When all this stops, humanity comes to this very gentle halt. And of course, some bad ructions in my mind happened along the way to that moment where humanity wheezed its way out. But essentially, from a writer's point of view, the fun thing was looking at everything around us and saying, okay, what what disappears? What What doesn't exist once you stop having power, once you stop having communication? And that's enormously fun to do. And I was very informed in doing that, funnily enough, by listening to the radio. Over here on the BBC, we had there was a science programme and a man called Jan Zalasiewicz, who's a um, geologist, who's the man who coined the phrase the Anthropocene, that we're now living in the Anthropocene period, where um, the effects that hum- humanity has on the world's geology is beginning to become apparent. And we're leaving a permanent mark. And you know, climate change and everything is part of that. And I was so fascinated by him talking about that that I and he'd written a book called The World After Us, The Earth After Us, that I immediately went and bought it on Amazon and read it, except I hadn't remembered the name of the book correctly and I hadn't remembered his name at all. So instead of which I bought a book called The World Without Us by Alan Wiseman, which tackles the same problem from a much more, much less a geologist point of view, but a much more interesting point of view to me as, as, a, as a world builder of it, the book is a mind, it's a sort of thought experiment. What happens if all of humanity dis- disappeared today and aliens came down onto the planet in 10 years, in 100 years, in 1,000 years, in 10,000 years? What would remain of us? How quickly would our infrastructure and our mark on the planet disappear? How long does it take a skyscraper to fall down just because nobody maintains it? How long does a bridge stay up? And then I read the um, Jan Zalasiewicz book, and those two books were the, really the only hard pieces of research I did for the story because they provided me with the um, enough technical know-how and enough of a vision as to what would happen to the world if essentially almost everybody died and there are 7,000 people left spread across the entire planet. You know, how quickly does our world disappear? And it's it's a sort of, when, once you start doing that, it's, it's a really fascinating place to set a story in because it takes us into a future where the characters have an awareness of what happened in the past. So they also have an awareness of, in the case of Grizz, who's a great reader, has an awareness of post-apocalyptic fiction. So he knows what we thought would happen. And the reality of the post-apocalypse is very different to anything that we thought would happen. And that became a fun thing to play with too. Well, it's interesting because the books you're mentioning deal with, it sounds like, the technical aspects on some level, at least that first book about what happens to buildings and what happens without technology and how quickly things decay. And as a novelist, you're dealing with that. That is part of the setting, but you're also dealing with the emotional experience that Grizz has and the experiential part of it. So there's some really interesting details that stood out for me, like, for instance, the idea of meeting a new person. You know, as you say, in a world with 7,000 people, there's very little opportunity for Grizz to ever meet anyone outside of his family. So it's sort of a revelation in the rare occurrence of someone coming along. And and also the idea of being in a crowd. He 
he reflects on that too. At one point, he says something like, I haven't met enough people to make up two teams for a game of football or soccer, I suppose, to, yep. to translate to an American audience. But it's really, it's really a wonderful moment where he's speculating what it would feel like to be in a crowd, what it would sound like, what it would smell like. That comes from your imagination, obviously. It is, but um, the, the technical stuff of those two books, what I call the hard research um, for the story, was important for me to have that as a kind of world-building tool or a world-subtracting tool. But what really got me into wanting to write the story was I wanted to write that emotional story. I wanted to write, because I don't think, for my taste, the stories that I like are the ones that take you on an emotional journey where you identify with the characters and you have sort of hopes and fears for them. All, all that good stuff that all writers do, but it's character that really interests me. And I want to, one thing I wanted to do with this book, which I hadn't done in any of my 10 previous books, was write in the first person. And I partly I just wanted to see what it would be like to face that challenge of writing a character from the inside, um, which I found, having been scared to do it, once I started doing it, I really enjoyed it. And part of that is you have to get into the emotions. You have to deal, it, it helps you deal with the imagination because you have to you really do have to walk that mile in somebody else's shoes and see it through see the world through their eyes and a lot of what i wanted to do with in telling an emotional story was because i'm a dad and i do i think as we all do kind of worry about the world as it is at the moment which seems to be going through a particularly mad dystopian flirtation with dystopian moment I kind of worry about what's coming down the pike. And it's very easy for me. I'm kind of obsessive about the media. So it's very easy for me to get obsessed by politics and do nothing but you know, monitor politics all day and get nothing creatively done and get more and more worked up. So what I do to avoid that is um, I write. And in this case, I particularly wanted to write something that was that was kind of focusing on one of the one of the devices, I should probably say this, one of the devices in the book is the book is not only written in the first person, but it's written in the style of a diary or a journal that Grizz is keeping. And Grizz, of course, doesn't have anybody who's going to read his his, his writings because you know everybody who he's grown up with knows his story because they've lived it with him because he's just grown up with his family. And you know, there isn't an audience out there to read his book. So he has chosen to write his journal to the photograph that he discovered in an empty house while scavenging through for things to um, to pick up and uh, repurpose. And it's a picture of a boy and his dog jumping on a beach. And he something about the picture of the boy really appeals to him and he sticks it in his journal. And so he writes his journal, he addresses it to that person who is, of course, long dead, his imaginary friend. But he has a face for his imaginary friend in this old photograph. And that enabled me to write, and this is going to sound deeply pretentious, but I hope it doesn't come across as such in the book, but it kind of let me write a love letter to the present from the future in that I felt that he was able to see things about our world by seeing the remnants of our world that we take for granted. So he was able to see beauty in things that we just think as part of the, you know, the general chatter of our lives. You know, he, he, the first time, for example, that he sees a bridge spanning a motorway, he's taken by the beauty of it and the extraordinary ability to create this incredibly elegant curved shape out of concrete and have it seem to fly across the sky. And he's grown up never seeing anything that big. And so for him, he's just able to sort of, he's able to smell the roses. You know, he's able to see the beauty around us that we don't see. Let's dive into the actual plot. The inciting act of the story is when a stranger comes 
a guy named Brand, and he comes by boat. And of course, just the fact that he's someone new is fascinating enough, but he's also a compelling guy. He's got great stories, and he seems very sympathetic. And then when Grizz wakes up the next morning after, you know, they welcome his family, welcomes Brand into their home, and they spend the night. Well, he wakes up, and maybe you could say, you know, what he discovers, what's happened. Grizz's family are, are excited to see a new face. Um, he's a very charismatic, interesting storyteller who's a sort of sea traveler, and he tells all the stories of the empty world that he's sailed through, and he's been much further than they've been. He's been all the way down to the north coast of Africa, and he's, he's been everywhere. And he tells them stories about how empty the world is, but also the extraordinary things that he's seen and experienced along the way. And they, starved of entertainment, enjoy his stories and fall victim to his charm. And one of the things he does is he gives them things to eat that he's discovered far away. And he's made marmalade out of oranges because he's discovered oranges, which of course don't grow in the north. And when Grizz, I don't want to give too much away for readers, but basically um, when Grizz wakes in the morning, he discovers that uh, the trader brand has actually stolen the stuff he wanted from them, which is their, amongst other things, is their stocks of dried fish and um, various other things. And most importantly, Grizz's female dog called Jess. And one of the things that's established is that um, dogs may well have been punished for walking so close with us through the long eons of history by also being slightly affected by the gelding. And so female dogs particularly are very rare. And having a dog is a good thing because a dog um, can be alert and you know, make you aware that there's danger stalking around your campfire. So in this, in this rather more dangerous, stripped-back modern world, a dog is a good thing. And Brand has essentially stolen his dog. And Grizz discovers that his family is incapa- has been incapacitated by Brand and he just sees him sailing off and he has a moment. If he doesn't act, Brand will sail out of his world, beyond his reach, with his dog. And he has a choice, stay and let that happen or go and rescue his dog. And he gets in his own boat with his other dog, Jip, and sets off to rescue his dog. Because as he says, if you're not true to the things you love, what are you? That's when you stop being human. And so he impulsively sets off to rescue his dog and in so doing follows Brand through the ruins of our world, which he has never visited, having lived on these barrier islands on the west coast of Scotland. He goes into the mainland and follows Brand to try and rescue his dog and discovers our world and various other surprises along the way. There's something inherently compelling about a kid loyal to his dog, but what drew you personally to this story? Why did you choose to write this particular story? I was an only child, and I remember when I was five, the morning of my fifth birthday, being taken down to the kitchen, and in the larder, I was pushed into the larder to find something, and there was a dog, and that dog was my dog till I was 22, and was like, you know, it sounds hokey, but was like a family member, was like, you know, the brother or sister I didn't have. And if someone kidnaps your family member, you go after it. Um, You don't think about it. And so the connection with dogs has always been there. My dad, who was not necessarily a very emotional man, wrote a fantastic letter to me when my dog finally died at 22. And he said, if you're lucky, you get two great dogs in your life. You get the dog that you grew up with as a child, and then you get the other great dog, which is the dog you watch your children grow up with. And he was writing because he was enormously sad at having seen that dog 
you know, it's, they'd seen me grow up with, die. And that sort of stuck with me, A, because it was an unusual letter, and B, because it just seemed to be bang on the money. And then as we had a dog, uh, as we had children, then had a dog that grew up with them, I realized the absolute truth of that. And dogs, you know, have walked the long eons of history beside us in a way no other animal has. And I guess we come, I'm just come from, my wife has exactly the same experience of, of dogs in her life. And um, so we've always had dogs around us and they've always been important. And it seems to me that would be, a, if someone stole my dog, I would, I would definitely take off after them. So Grizz takes with him in his search for Jess, their other dog, Jip. Yeah. And so I wonder when you write about Jip, are you thinking about your childhood dog? Are you thinking about your kid's dog? No, I'm thinking, I'm, th- I'm thinking absolutely specifically about my kid's dog, who's called Archie, who actually died in the, the month that I handed the, the manuscript in. And Archie has appeared in different guises in the other books I've written as, um, as Charlie Fletcher. I've read a dark Victorian trilogy set in London called The Oversight, and the terrier in that is um, called Jed, but is actually Archie. So I've always kind of written Archie into the um, into, into the worlds I've created. And my wife, in fact, has a whole series of children's books called Archie, specifically based on him. So we've definitely got our money's worth out of this one particularly um, interesting terrier, um, spirited terrier. And so, yeah, Archie is absolutely based, a uh, Jip is absolutely based on a real dog called Archie. And then we now have a new dog to replace him. And that dog is called Jip. So um, we're trying to keep the, the story going. Well, that's so sweet. That's way more than you needed to know. Well, it really is the driving force in the story, it's what motivates Grizz to go on this dangerous adventure. And then Jip is really there, is his only companion for a significant part of the journey and is essential in, in many places as, a, as an aid to him and helping him. Yeah, I have to say that the real life Jip, who we, who we now have, is, is, is a young terrier and I definitely wouldn't rely on him for anything. But the, his his predecessor Archie grew into a very, a very sort of strong, wise, um, loyal dog. We got what we at the moment have is a very out of control terrier, which is often the way with terriers. They they start off crazy and then they, after about two years, they kind of calm down. So I think they have a prolonged, terrible twos. But yeah, the the jip in the book is absolutely resolute and is you know is the other, I suppose the other sort of emotional center of, of the story for a lot of the journey. Obviously, all the technology that we are so used to and so defines our current world doesn't exist in the future. As you've said, there's no internet, there's no electricity, but there is a kind of technology that endures things like a map, a map on paper, or a what I think is, sounds like a wind-up Victrola that plays old records. And it's interesting that those things have survived. And it just makes me think about how much longer they will survive. I mean, if this, if a similar apocalypse, a soft apocalypse were to happen, say, in 100 years, would there be any more wind-up Victrolas left for people to use? Or would we no longer have music that people didn't play their, themselves, you know, if they didn't have the instruments? It's just sort of interesting to think how those are probably the things that would survive and how we don't really use those things anymore so much. I mean, even maps, how many maps are there today? I suppose you could make one if you had paper, but we rely on Google or some other app usually to, to take us around these days. 
Yeah, well, it was definitely my thinking is that once the, you know, once the virtual world disappears, once um, the internet goes, once electricity disappears, digital stops dead. And so at that point, if you're trying to survive, you have to find, you have to go back to analog. And so um, I'm looking at the wind up gramophone that's in the book. It's actually sitting the other side of my office and that I got from a junkyard and it, you know, it still plays records that um, I also pick up from the junkyard and it still works. You know, one day we'll run out of, you know, new needles to put in, but um, it doesn't need a very sophisticated needle to go in it. And it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a record player that you can mend or, you know, it's all you need is a screwdriver to mend it, you know? So, Everything goes back to analog very quickly. And the other thing is books, of course, are supremely analog. Books won't last forever, but if you keep them dry and you keep them you know, away from things that will eat them, books will last a hell of a long time too. They're pretty robust repositories of knowledge. And Grizz has, you know, as his family scavenges for things to help them survive in the ruins of our world and through, through the other houses in the islands, for example, Grizz is the one who always saves books and reads a lot um, because that's what will happen. We'll go back to the analog pleasures and the analog sources of, of education and diversion. I want to talk a little bit about keeping secrets as well. Secrets play a role in this story. For instance, from the very beginning or early on, we know that Brand has lied, the traveler, the trader who's taken Jess. And at some point, Grizz finds out some things about his family that were not represented to him the way they really are. And and then eventually we find out, well, it's a first-person story. And so, as often happens in first-person stories, we're obviously dependent on Grizz's giving us information. And maybe, well, at some point, maybe there's information we realize we haven't fully understood all of which makes for a gripping plot and great surprises. I wonder if you could say something about that. And obviously, I don't want you to give things away. It might be hard to do to do that. But um, what can you say about keeping secrets in a story and how they drive a narrative or can drive a narrative forward? I think in a funny way, it's. I'm going to try and do this without spoilers. Um, I think in I think in technical terms, it's helpful to be in the first. In this case, it was helpful to be in the first person because it's not that you had a consciously unreliable narrator, but you had a narrator who had a very short horizon on the world because of the way the world is, and also because of the way that Grizz had grown up. So, as a reader, you only know what Grizz knows, and Grizz does not know everything. Grizz only knows the stories that Grizz has been told growing up, or that Grizz has experienced you know, in, in, in the period of his, of his life. So that is a good way to be able to play with the reader is kind of the wrong thing, but you, you can do a certain amount of misdirection, which I suppose is a bit like, it's like the dark side of planting and payoff under books, stories, my other life as a screenwriter, using planting and payoff, planting and payoff is what makes things satisfying in story terms, because it makes us as a reader or a viewer feel privileged and clever because we go, aha, of course that makes sense because, and we remember the plant. In this case, it's a little more like a magic trick perhaps in that the magic trick is about also about planting and payoff, but what you're planting is not necessarily the thing that people think you're planting at the point you're planting it. In other words, there is a certain amount of misdirection that happens. And narratively, I think what you're talking about is perhaps, hopefully, seems to be pleasurable for the reader because it's very close to, it's a kind of, it's the, it's the flip side of planting and payoff. It's like dark planting. It's, a, it's not straight planting. And so hopefully, 
although they are, there are a couple of surprises, they're surprises that in the same way with straight planting and payoff makes sense and makes us enjoy it. I think in this case, the misdirections and the, which are not huge, but it has a similar craft effect in the writing is that it's, they're surprises, but hopefully they are satisfying surprises. They're not totally out of left field. If they came totally out of left field and appeared absolutely had no planting at all earlier on, I think they would be unsatisfying, but hopefully the way it works is the surprises are jolts and surprises, but hopefully they also make sense without breaking anything that came before. That's a really complicated way to try and talk about it without giving anything away. Is it hard to keep secrets from the reader? I mean, in terms of just technique, you kind of know the full picture and you have to make decisions, as all writers do, of course. You're constantly picking just the right detail to convey an entire scene. So I suppose it's kind of the same thing. But I mean, for instance, I'm I'm the kind of person who just can't do a practical joke on someone. I can't just do like an April Fool's and say something that isn't true because it's just, I just can't, I can't do it. It's so hard to do. So I just wonder to sustain that in the course of a novel where you're thinking of things and thinking, well, how do I present this without being completely clear? I just wonder what kind of challenge that poses for you. I'd love to say it was a difficult challenge, but actually it, 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 I don't think it's that hard because, in fact, for the very reason that you talked about practical jokes, I have the same thing about jokes. I would like to, t- you know, when I start to tell a joke to my friends, I always mangle it. I never get it correct. I never get the timing right. I always muff the punchline and I know it, how it should go. I just can't do it in real time. And the great secret about writing is we don't do it in real time. You know, we write it and then we can go back and make ourselves look better by, you know, cleaning things up um, and by editing ourselves and by moving stuff around so that it looks, the reader only reads it once. And so it reads seamlessly. But because we don't have to do our, our withholding or our magic trick or our tell our joke in real time, we can appear to the reader to be seamless. But yeah, because you can go back and, go that doesn't work work out why something doesn't work and reorder it it isn't once you've decided to do it it isn't as hard as you might think when you're reading it and you mentioned just now of course that you're also a screenwriter and i saw somewhere that you have a tv series that you've been shooting recently and it made me wonder about the process of creating a novel versus creating a tv show or a movie and it's a little hard for me to imagine the same person would really like to do both since writing a book is so solitary, whereas I imagine making a TV series, which is something I've never done, is very collaborative. And um, there must be a million other differences, actually. There are, there are a lot of differences. What I, what I, I, mean, I, I, you know, I began as a screenwriter. Um, and as you know, as a screenwriter, you're only ever, you're writing for two things. You're writing for the camera and you're writing for the microphone. So anything that you can't pick up on the microphone or you can't capture with the camera doesn't go into the screenplay. So screenplays are very stripped down forms of storytelling. And I like that. And that's how I trained. And before I was a screenwriter, I was a film editor. So I kind of knew a little bit about structuring narrative and pacing and also about how, funnily enough, the thing we, I was just talking about, planting and payoff has a lot to do with film editing in that often when sequences don't work, it's not the sequence itself. It's the thing that came before it. So those are all transferable skills into screenwriting. But what screenwriting doesn't let you do is go inside the head of your characters and do any of that kind of stuff, which writing a novel does let you do. And so at a certain point, um, and it was when my kids were uh, sort of 
they were sort of heading towards teenage years, my oldest, I thought, I actually want to write a book for them. And I was getting frustrated with screenwriting because although, you know, on paper it was going well enough, but you write a lot of screenplays that don't get made. And the way people pay you for them, it still feels a little stillborn. So I wanted to write one thing. It was just from me so that you know, if I get hit by a bus, they'd at least be able to go, well, you know, gosh, here are all these sad, dusty scripts that dad got paid to write, very few of which got made. But on the other hand, here's a really good story he wrote for us. And that's why I started writing books as a sort of way of putting my head into a different creative space to screenwriting. And once I'd done that, I was hooked. And now I'm at a stage where I try and spend half the year doing screen, half the year doing books. And it sort of works out pretty much averages out like that. And what I really like is the change of disciplines. I like going in, being a gun for hire, writing in that very stripped down screenwritery way for some of the year. And then I love the freedom of being just for a moment, king of my own world as a novelist, where I can go inside the characters' heads, I can tell you what they're thinking, I can I can do whatever I want. And, you know, I'm in charge, for, you know, for, until, it, until it goes on to my editor and she tells me I've done terrible things. But, you know, the two, to me, now in my working year work really well because I don't get stale with either of them. They, they both seem to feed each other in a funny sort of way. And I like that. I like the freedom of being able to go inside the head and talk about thoughts and emotions rather than always having to think of a visual analogue for an emotion or a thought, which is what you have to do with, um, with screenplays. So there's a freedom. to. I like that. I like the freedom of, I like the freedom of writing books and I like the the constraints of writing screenplays, but I would hate to only have one of those as a sort of on, on, in my tool chest. Fantastic that you've got that balance. You get to do so much with your creativity. Well, it's, 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 it sounds a lot more balanced than it is in reality, but it's, um, I think it was David Simon said a really clever thing on some interview, which I can't remember, which is you can do both. You can wear both hats, but sort of by God, you have to remember which hat you're wearing on any particular day. Because if you start to write a novel, you know, with your screenwriting hat on, it's going to be a really bad day. And um, so you do need to do a kind of gear change in your head. But if you're lucky enough to be able to do it, you know, I really recommend it. Because I think I do, I feel that the two things stop me becoming stale with, with, with either one. I saw that you're an avid swimmer, a lap swimmer, I presume. Yeah. I am too, and I'm always interested in hearing where the best places in the world to swim are. So do you have any favorite spots? I think the best place to swim is anywhere you can get to quickly. So the, in terms of, in terms of I, I'm very lucky where I am just outside Edinburgh is that there is, a, there is a large pool that I go to, I try and get to three or four mornings a week and swim a mile. And I find that clears my head. So that's just a public pool, and that's great. And then apart from that, the best place to swim is the place we as a family go every year, and we're about to go in a couple of weeks, um, which is to the Outer Hebrides, um, which you mustn't tell anybody, but we go to North Uist, and they are the most beautiful beaches in the world. They're white sand beaches. You can be on a white sand beach with deep, deep blue water, and there is where we stay, there is a six-mile beach, and we're often the only people on the beach at the height of summer, and it's it's cold. You have to be able to swim in cold water, but that's not a problem. And that's my favorite place to swim. And if I don't get to go there at least once a year and spend a lot of time in the water there, I, I feel itchy for the rest of the year. So at the moment, we have a sort of 17-year streak of, um, of, of continuity with that. And that's for the family. That's where everybody resets their, their heads for, for the rest of the year. But as I say, you have to – it's not as cold. I mean, I've swum, you know, I've, I've swum in the water in, you know, in um, – 
in New England, and that's really, really cold, the other side of the Atlantic. And this isn't quite as cold because we have the Gulf Stream coming around the north of Scotland. While we still have a Gulf Stream, and that makes the water a little more swimmable. I grew up on Lake Michigan, so I know cold water. Yeah. <laughs> and I've actually swum in Edinburgh at, I forget, I think it was built for a competition a number of years ago. Yeah, no, it's called the Commonwealth Pool. It was for the Commonwealth Games, 50-meter pool. Yeah, that was a beautiful pool. Yeah. I, I definitely enjoyed swimming there and walking across. We were staying at an Airbnb on the other side of the big park. Of course, I'm not remembering the names of anything. And then walking through the park to get to the pool just felt like I was back in time or something. Yeah, it's a, it's a good park. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a cool Arthur's seat. It's quite volcanic. I mean, there's, there's, did you come across that one, which has a, it's, it's, it's quite high. It's not a flat park. Right, exactly. And there's a bit of there's some ruins there too, or there's some old falling apart little tower or something. I seem to remember. Yeah, yeah. Known as Queen Mary's Bathhouse, I think. A beautiful place and a beautiful book. And thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about it. That's a real pleasure. And if if you find yourself in Edinburgh, come and say hi. We'll, we'll take you to where the good swimming is. Definitely. Sounds great. My guest has been Charlie Fletcher, writing as C.A. Fletcher, and we've been talking about A Boy and His Dog at the End of the World, which came out from Orbit in April. This is New Books in Science Fiction. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already. Leave a review if you're in the mood. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf. I'm the author of The Alternate Universe. You can find more about me at robwolf.net and follow me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. And thanks so much for dropping by. <laughs>